Welcome to a new episode of the Philmont Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're featuring a programmer's preview of the seventh edition of Neighboring Scenes, the annual wide-ranging showcase of contemporary Latin American cinema, featuring established auteurs as well as fresh talent from the international festival scene. The preview is led by Cinema Tropical programmers Carlos A. Gutierrez and Cecilia Barrionevo. Featuring world premieres and filmmaker Q&As, Neighboring Scenes takes place from February 24th to 28th. Go to filmlink.org slash ns2022 for showtimes and tickets. Following the festival preview is a special conversation from our Two Sir With Love free screening about the legacy of Sidney Poitier and the figure of the Black movie star. Featuring scholars Raquel Gates and Michael Gillespie, and moderated by filmmaker and critic Taylor Montague. Now, let's go to the talks. Hi, my name is Carlos Gutierrez. I am the co-founding executive director of Cinema Tropical, the not-for-profit organization dedicated to the promotion of Latin American cinema in the U.S. And it is my pleasure to introduce my dear colleague, uh, Cecilia Barrio Nuevo, who is the artistic director of the Mar del Plata Film Festival in Argentina. Hola, Cecilia, ¿qué tal? Hola, Carlos. Hi, how are you? <laughs> We're both the programmers of Neighboring Scenes, New Latin American Cinema, the annual showcase presented by Film at Lincoln Center in partnership with Cinema Tropical. And now uh, we're celebrating our seventh annual edition. And we're very thrilled to be back in theaters. Um, this year's neighboring scenes will take place uh, between Thursday, February 24th, and Monday, February 28th, at the Walter Reed Theater at Film at Lincoln Center. And after two very long years, we're thrilled to be back with in person screenings. Um, but anyway, I guess it's important to mention that we have um, two types of passes. We have an um, $80 all-access pass, as well as a $20 all-access pass for students. And for more information, visit film at Lincoln Center's website, filmlink.org. And um, there's more information on the films we'll be discussing, and, um, and tickets go on sale on February the 11th. And before we talk about our career drill practice, and more specifically about this year's lineup, um, I guess it's very important to note um, and to say that Latin American cinema has been producing some of the most, uh, some of the best films and some of the most powerful and probably risk-taking cinema in the past um, two decades uh, for numerous reasons, which I'm not gonna uh, discuss here because uh, otherwise we, uh, this could go for, for, for a long time. Um, but the region has built a very solid cinema, cinematography in 2000, um, in filmography, I mean, uh, in 2019, uh, just right before COVID, uh, the region produced over 900 films, um, which is of course a, a record-breaking number for the region. And it's important to mention that it's not only quantity, but, but quality of what's essence here. Um, in that sense, we want to salute our partners at the Film at Lincoln Center for being such a vital platform for the exhibition of Latin American cinema in this country through its numerous festivals and series like New York Film Festival, New Directors, New Films, Art of the Real, and of course, Neighboring Scenes. Film at Lincoln Center has been uh, an important and epicenter for the exhibition of Latin American cinema in this country. And having said that, um, Cecilia, do you want to share some um, with the audience some of the curatorial aspects that we've taken into consideration for programming neighboring scenes in the past uh, and also this year in particular? Yes, of course. Thank you, Carlos. Yeah, and in fact, we are very excited. Uh, we talk a little bit about the importance of the films that we have selected for this year. Uh, because we feel that it's a very interesting selection. We have a tried to show the diversity of the Latin American cinema, as you said before, and try to be very representative in our 
selection in relation with different type of voices and ways of seeing, model of productions, language, ways of approaching reality, which is also very, very different in not only in every country, but also in every small town in Latin America. And that is also why we have selected films that represent different places, times, and contexts uh, seeking to give rise to a cinema that represents and reflects its time. Uh, the program for this year, we present a program composed by uh, short films and feature films uh, and works of various lengths ranging from two minutes to two hours. We have included experimental films, narrative films, documentaries, fiction, animation, and uh, author with uh, trajectories and many new names to discover, which films have, have uh, less visibility in theaters or are not well-known films, and films that are premiered in the biggest film festivals. And many of these films of these years uh, are director's debut features films. And yeah, the, I think that this, uh, we think that this is very important for neighboring scenes, no? It's uh, also a showcase that uh, commits to new voices. For this edition, I guess it's important to mention that we're, um, we're screening 13 feature films and six short films, uh, so a total of 19 films. And um, we're happy to announce that we have one international premiere, seven North American premieres, and six U.S. premieres. So local New York audiences will have a chance to see uh, many of these films uh, before other national and international audiences. Um, another important thing to mention is that out of these 19 films in the program, 11 were directed by women filmmakers. Uh, we usually in the past have had a very solid representation of women filmmakers, but this year uh, more than ever, um, uh, we have uh, in, in the program, there's more uh, women filmmakers, which um, also um, sign how uh, women filmmakers are really important in Latin American cinema. We have films from nine different countries, um, which include Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Costa Rica, Colombia, Mexico, Peru, Uruguay, and Venezuela. So also talks about the, uh, the geographical diversity that Cecilia was um, talking about. And also, uh, we're very happy to announce that we have, uh, will have eight guest filmmakers between directors and producers in attendance for Q&As Q and introductions. So, um, so that's a better reason to be there in person and celebrate the power of in-person screenings. And now onto the program of um, this, year's, um, um, this year's lineup, uh, and we'll go in chronological order um, from Thursday to Monday. So the opening night on Thursday, February 24th is the Mexican film the Other Tom, um, El Otro Tom, by um, the Uruguayan-born filmmakers Rodrigo Pla and Laura Santoyo. This is their first um, collaboration, the first time they co-direct. Um, the film is based on a novel by Santuyo, and it tells the story of Elena, a working-class Latina single mom, and her nine-year-old son um, who live in the, the U.S.-Mexico border, and Tom, the son who has been diagnosed with ADHD. Um, we're very happy to welcome back to Dr. Rodrigo Pla. We had screened his uh, previous film, uh, A Monster Without a Thousand Heads, and he was he was here in New York uh, with us to introduce that film. And the next day, you can see Medusa, a Brazilian film that had had a long running festival. It was a part of the selection of the Cannes Film Festival last year in Director Fortnite. 
Medusa was made by Anita Rocha da Silveiras, who had previously made Kill Me Please. Kill Me Please was programmed in New Director New Films a few years ago here. And um, see a bunch of teenagers here in, in this film. You see a bunch of teenagers as a protagonist between prayers, choreographies, songs, and videos for social networks. Freely, uh, freely reinterpreting the myth of Medusa in a dark and conservative, misogynistic, bolsonaristic, racist. <laughs> It's a, a disturbing and critical film. And yeah, and it's a, the film, um, yeah, I think it's, it's a, Anita will be with us in, uh, join us in, in the series. So you can talk with her. her. Next, uh, that Friday, we're also screening The Sky is Red, which is a powerful debut feature by Chilean director Francina Carbonell. I guess it was important to mention that, um, you know, from what Cecilia was saying, that uh, uh, we also have a, a, a good mixture between fiction and nonfiction films, and, and this is a really potent documentary. Um, it narrates, um, recreates uh, the 2010 fire in, at the San Miguel prison in Santiago, Chile, where 80 people, 81 people died. Um, so it's a really powerful um, film that uses um, images from security cameras and archival audio and um, documents from a court filing, uh, a court um, filing um, to recreate this, uh, this uh, horrible event um, and all what it involves. Uh, the next one is another documentary, this uh, De Todas Las Cosas Que Se Han De Saber. This documentary was shot in Los Andes in a small village in the, a town in the north of Peru where before living for Paris, the writer Cesar Vallejo was born and raised and this isolated town called uh, Santiago de Chuco was also the main setting for the writer's poems. Uh, de todas las cosas que se han de saber, it's a deeply moving film. Uh, it's a portrait of the collective memories of the people of the town. And it's a debut documentary of Sofia Velázquez uh, around the, one of the most important Latin American authors. And, the next one is another documentary. In this case, it's Red Star. It's uh, the international premiere uh, Carlos talking about. It's a film essay by an Argentinian filmmaker, Sofia Bordenave, which uh, originates from the moment of the centenary of the Russian Revolution to deepen the idea of the future when it was believed that the future was infinite. Soviet cosmets, philosophers, and scientists of the last century imagine bringing back to life all the people that ever born and conquering other planets so that they could live together in harmony. This is a debut film also and was the winner of the Critics Award for Best First Film at the Mar del Plata International Film Festival. Next in our lineup, it's uh, the wonderful Venezuelan film, Me and the Beast, Yuri Las Bestias, uh, which is also um, the view feature uh, by uh, director uh, Nico Manzano. And it's a very peculiar comedy, um, um, sort of deadpan humor comedy about a frustrating musician living in Caracas um, who lives with his mother. Uh, he's unhappy at his job. And to make things worse, uh, he's kicked out of his indie band for political difference with the members. Uh, well, the country um, the country's economic crisis uh, worsens. So it's a very interesting uh, take on uh, Venezuela and uh, through a very um, different um, lens, uh, 
one day this frustrated musician he encounters two mysterious masked beings uh, the beast who inspired to compose com to com to compose music um this is uh, me and the beast and then um on saturday night uh saturday the 26th we'll um screen um the box la caja uh, as a centerpiece uh for neighboring scenes, which is a second fiction 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 feature film by Venezuelan director Lorenzo Vigas, um, he became or his film uh, from afar became the first Latin American film to win the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival a few years ago. And this film, set in Mexico, uh, tells the story of a teenager who from Mexico City who travels north of the country to look um, uh, to look to collect for the remains of his father who died in unknown circumstances. And there he meets a stranger person um, who um, who looks very similar with his father, and um, that detonates um, um, different things. The film it's uh, you know it's a very interesting psychological thriller about paternity, and also offers a critical look at Mexico's maquiladora, this assembly system. And um, I guess it's important to mention that this film was um, in the main competition at the Venice Film Festival last September. The next film in our lineup is Aurora. It's the third film by Costa Rica's filmmakers Paz Fabrega, starring for two amazing actresses. Uh, the film tells the story of Juliana. She is 16 years old and has become pregnant without wanting to, without knowing who the father of her baby is. And uh, at the moment, her school teacher finds out and decides to help her. And the film, it's a delicate exposes the diverse perspective of the motherhood and mothering. And the film was premiered last year at the Rotterdam International Film Festival and is a co-production between Costa Rica, Mexico, Panama, and it's the North premiere here in neighboring scenes. And the next one is uh, another documentary. Uh, it's called Dirty Feathers. It's a film debut a documentary by a, by a Mexican-American photographer and director, Carlos Alfonso Corral. The film is produced by well-known filmmaker, Roberto Minervini, and shot on the street of the borders of El Paso and Ciudad Juarez in suburban black and white with precise distances. This very, uh, very textile film is a respectful por portrait of the people living on the edge. And the film was released in the panorama section in, at the Berlin Alley Film Festival last year. Uh, our next film in the program uh, was a winner for best film at the John Jew Film Festival and was also recently announced as the Cinematographical Award winner for Best Documentary. It is the, the powerful, very potent uh, debut as Splinters Esquilas by Argentine director Natalia Garayalde. And actually, it's very interesting. I think there's, a, there's some, some connection here with the, red, the, the sky is red in the sense that both filmmakers use, um, use uh, footage. In this case, Natalia uses um, uh, personal uh, footage from, from a personal camcorder to capture a major explosion um, at a military factory in her hometown in 1995, which was a big scandal in Argentina. And through the personal, um, through this personal footage, uh, Natalia is able to, to, to create a link between the personal, the family, and, and the national, the, the political. And it's also uh, you know, a, very, a very powerful, um, a very powerful debut, debut feature. I think one of the most uh, um, important um, debuts um, in Latin America cinema last year. Then also, um, on Sunday, we'll also be screening um, a Chilean film, My Brother's Dream Awake, 
which uh, also uh, has won numerous awards, including uh, the awards for best film, uh, both uh, the Guadalajara Film Festival and the Valdivia Film Festival, Guadalajara Film Festival in Mexico, the Valdivia Film Festival in Chile. And it's a second feature film by um, Mapuche director Claudia Guaitimilla. And uh, it has world premiere at the Locarno Film Festival and follows the story of two kids um, who are incarcerated in a juvenile prison. And um, it's inspired by real events. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a very powerful film that includes uh, non-professional actors, the two kids, um, also with and mixes with, um, with renowned actress Paulina Garcia you might remember from uh, the Academy Award nominated film, Gloria. The last day, Monday, last day of uh, For Neighboring Scenes, uh, you can see uh, The Joy of Things. This is a feature debut of director Thais Pusiwara. And the film portrays a middle-class family, a social sector perhaps not so often seen in Brazilian films. And the main character is Paula, who has two children and is pregnant and she decides to go with them and her mother to the beach house and build a huge swimming pool there to spend the summer, but economic uh, and family crisis haunt her and nothing is, is uh, as she pretends. And the film is a great film and great debut film. And last but not least uh, in the feature lineup, uh, it's um, the third feature film by Uruguayan, Uruguayan writer and director Manolo Nieto, um, The Employer and the Employee. Uh, and if you've seen his previous two films, The Dog Pound and The Militant, uh, you'll see, and he continues his um, insightful and, and provocative uh, examination of class conflict in Latin America. This film is set, um, in Uruguay, in close to the border of, uh, of Brazil. And it stars uh, Argentine actor, Nahuel Perez Vizcayart, uh, who has acted in numerous, numerous films. Uh, you might remember him from BPM, Beats Per Minute, uh, the, the French film. And um, it's, a, it's the relationship, the film tells the relationship between a, a young land owner and, and, um, and, a, and a teenager who works with him. Um, who they create a, a very strong uh, relationship until um, an event, an accident, uh, um, tears them apart. And Ceci, you want to tell us about the, the short films in the program? Yeah, yeah. Finally, I would like to mention something about the six short films that we programmed this year. And uh, the first one is The Stillness Syndrome by Leon Siminiani, a playful dystopian essay featuring the late filmmaker Luis Ospina at his protagonist. Uh, the next one is Holiday by Susana Lozana. Uh, Holiday uh, was shot in 16 millimeters and to the sound of the word of Bruno Negrao's poem, S.G. Sufo Sepreto. Dear Chantal by well-known director Nicolás Pereda. It's a moving tribute to the filmmaker Chantal Ackerman, of course. Sol de Campiñas is the last short uh, by Jessica Sara Rinland. It portrays the work of a group of archaeologists in a square in a Brazilian city. The Bones uh, by Chilean filmmakers Cristobal León and Joaquin Cocina. They, they were in uh, neighboring scenes uh, in the last year, two years ago, really, no? Two years ago, which a uh, feature film. What, uh, this film was winner of the best short award at the Venice Film Festival, and it's an animation stop motion. And finally, Light Trap 
by Pablo Marín was shot in super eight millimeters and it was the winner of the principal online prize uh, at the International Film Festival Overhausen. Well, Cecilia and I, we want to thank the wonderful staff at Film at Lincoln Center for making this festival possible. And we also want to thank all the filmmakers in the program. Uh, and we hope to see you at Film at Lincoln Center again, February 24th to the 28th. Tickets go on sale on Friday, February 11th. And we have um, all access pass, $80 for general audience and a $20 all access pass for students. And again, for all, for more information, uh, tickets and um, more information on these films, uh, visit filmlink.org and hope to see you there. And thanks for watching. Thank you, hope to see you there. Hi, I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. The Film Comment Letter is a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com to get the letter every week. Support independent film journalism. Support Film Comment. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for tonight's special tribute to Sidney Poitier, to Mr. Poitier with love. I hope you all enjoyed that movie. Uh, what a classic. And really thrilling to see it again on the big screen. So thank you all for joining us for that experience. And I'm delighted to introduce the panelists for today's uh, post-screening talk. Uh, all three of them are real stars and the perfect guests for this topic. So I think you're going to have a really great time listening to them uh, talk about Mr. Poitier's legacy and also the broader discourse of the black movie star that he's always been so central to. Now let me welcome our guests. Uh, first of all, we have the film scholar Michael Gillespie. Michael. Then we have uh, the scholar Raquel Gates. And our wonderful moderator, filmmaker and critic Taylor Montague. Hi all, thank you guys for coming tonight. It really means a lot to be in a panelist. I'm so excited to talk to y'all tonight. Um, so I figured to jump right in, we would just give a little bit of background on um, Sidney Poitier's career up until To Serve With Love um, is released. I know he won the Academy Award in 64, um, and he had a few career, career milestones before his big year in 67. So I was just hoping we could lead up to that to begin. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, so I, I, I suppose I'll, I'll speak to you know the bigness and the glory of 1967. Right. To Serve With Love comes out in June of 1967. Uh, in the Heat of the Night comes out in August of 67. And then Guess Who's Coming to Dinner comes out in December of 67. So it is a stunning year in terms of providing um, a really interesting opportunity to see a kind of range to Poitier's uh, work uh, that, you know, just I can't even comprehend really those three films in this so closely apart. I mean, I, I would just sort of like add to that. I think the, the fact that he is 
not just that he's in these three films, but he, he's the star of three big films in the same year also sort of speaks to this, this incredibly um, significant moment of like black stardom, the likes of which I don't think had been seen before that. I mean, if we're thinking about just sort of the history of like Hollywood representation, especially where black actors and actresses were always sort of supporting characters. I mean, even like the fabulous, fantastic supporting characters, but the idea that like, it would be a Sidney Poitier film, that you're coming to see Sidney Poitier as, as the star, I think also speaks to the power of his celebrity, which is not something that um, was like a thing um, be before him for the most part. Speaking of um, kind of Poitier and his celebrity, um, and in this big year that he's having, I'm also interested in kind of who were his contemporaries and who were the people he kind of came up with because we know that, you know, oftentimes when there's these big stars, they, they didn't get there alone. Um, and they, he, there were other actors that he worked with. Um, so I'm wondering like who would they be and kind of what were they up against similarly during this time? I mean, I'm always sort of, and, and Michael, you can feel free to, 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 to jump in as, as you see fit, but I'm always interested in like the relationship between Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte at the same time, and knowing that they were, you know, that they were friends, and that they were also both very active in the civil rights movement, and they sort of were talking about what was going on in Hollywood and talking about scripts and helping each other prepare for roles, um, which is a, a relationship that I always think is really interesting, um, given that I think particularly in the sort of logic of, of like Hollywood representation and tokenism, there can only be one. <laughs> um, and I have to imagine that they were often up for like the same roles. Um, and so I think that that relationship as contemporaries, but also friends, colleagues, and allies is really, um, is really important. Yeah, um, I, I mean, Harry Belafonte immediately comes to mind, but also for me, it's, it's quite crucial to think about their, um, their kind of political and social collaborations as well. I mean, there's the incredible story of when Sidney Poitier is approached to uh, do In the Heat of the Night, and he's just kind of straight up, I'm not going below the Mason-Dixon line. And all of that is very much based on his experience with Harry Belafonte of flying down to the South to uh, help deliver ransom money for the search for the missing civil rights workers, right? And eventually, I think they settled on Tennessee, Tennessee for a few of the scenes in The Heat of the Night. But for the most part, it's an Illinois film. Uh, uh, you know, I'm also thinking about um, uh, in, in, in a kind of political collectivity uh, that would also include Ruby Dee and Ozzie Davis as well. Um, but all of them kind of having these collateral interests of not only contributing to the civil rights struggle, but also trying to thrive within uh, a Hollywood system which in many ways still is of the tone of it's just not into you. But then I think in addition, then you also have this sort of, um, the other example of like Sammy Davis Jr. Um, who's around at the same time, who never becomes a big, he doesn't ever become a big film star, right? I mean, he, like he's in films, like he's in, he's in Ocean's Eleven and, and he's in like the Porgy and Best that we'll never, <laughs> that we'll never see, right? Cause, uh, but but I mean you also have Sammy Davis Jr. right who also is a, is a celebrity. I mean I feel like there's also this this um, line or this kind of subtle distinction that I want to draw between sort of black celebrities and then like black 
celebrity film actors, right? Because Sammy Davis Jr. was a celebrity. I mean, he, he's a headliner in Las Vegas and he's you know, part of the Rat Pack and he's very big on television, um, but he, he doesn't make that, that transition into film stardom even though like, he, he, he clearly wanted to, right? Um, and so I think that's another interesting um, you know, sort of contemporary, I, I mean, do, there's also the other person that's like floating in the, the, elephant, in the, room. the elephant in the room, the yeah. other contemporary. Yeah. I mean, like, there's Bill Cosby, too, right? I mean, and there's, and there's like, Sidney Poitier's, like, later collaborations. But, I mean, I'm thinking about this kind of moment in the, in the mid-'60s. And so even if we're talking about Cosby, I'm thinking of, like, I Spy I'm on television, right, with, 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 um, with Culp, um, uh, with Robert Culp. And so there's this kind of moment where, you know, in my estimation, there's a real sort of hunger and interest around these sort of figures of, like, black cosmopolitan, like, polished masculinity, of which Sidney Poitier is is like the icon of that, especially in the mid 60s. Just, just to add that, I mean, I think that uh, in terms of thinking of a, uh, in this period of a somewhat comparable resonating kind of issue around black femininity, I'm thinking of Diane Carroll. Um, she wins, uh, she's the first African American to win an Emmy in 1968 for Julia and then thinking of Gordon Parks, who is the first African-American to direct a, a Hollywood film in 69 with The Learning Tree. So there is a kind of mainstreaming, um, which we can get into later, falls into a, a kind of overdeterminance and exceptionalism that becomes a problem as the decade goes on. Actually, I'm curious about kind of um, the end of the decade, right? So 67, Poitiers has this, you know, these three huge films that come out um, and, you know, civil rights movements kind of giving way to black power, um, the black power movement. And I was curious about how, kind of the ways that celebrities and stars at the time began to pivot um, or if there were any kind of particular roles they were bypassing. Um, and then I figured we can get kind of a little bit into the 70s and how, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, Michael, you just brought up this, um, that, that phrase like exceptionalism. And, and so I, I think it's also important um, to understand Sidney Poitier not, not just as a celebrity unto himself, but also sort of within this kind of like historical pendulum swing between different types of, of, of like black representation. And so if we're thinking about, for example, like the 30s and the 40s and, and black celebrities like Lincoln Perry, AKA Step and Fetch It and Mantan Moreland and Hattie McDaniel who, who are also playing, you know, maids and butler characters um, in supporting roles and real sort of like hunger and desire for something uh, for like respectable characters for um, polished charismatic sort of leading men you get Sidney Poitier but of course I mean the 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 thing that's always underneath that is sort of the ways that his respectability in films I'm thinking you know like his 50s and 60s stuff like they always come at the cost of him being like in any ways like a sexual like agent in those films. I mean, it's interesting when you watch um, To Serve With Love, because I, I was really struck by the fact that like, like the clear like thing in the air is like everybody wants him, like the other teacher wants him and like, and Pamela wants him and you know, I mean, but he himself is not flirting with, like there's, we can't sort of intimate a romance between him and the other teacher, even though it's clearly like it's in the novel, right? Yeah, they have a, there's, there's a romance with Jillian, the other teacher that's in the source work. There's actually a whole chapter in the book devoted to when he goes to visit her family. Mm -hmm. But I mean, thinking about just the, you know, sort of issues around um, 
Hollywood, whether it's censorship or production code stuff or, you know, just kind of like social mores or whatever, I mean, like, you, you can't get that in this film. What we get are, like, a million shots of, like, Pamela, like, just staring, like, googly-eyed at him as, as he's teaching her, right? Like, as this sort of, you know, to, like, convey um, his, his virility and his attractiveness. And even thinking about um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is a film which is all about an interracial romance, but there are no scenes of that couple embracing or kissing except at the very beginning of the fil film where they're shown kissing, but through the rear view mirror. So it's not even like a, a direct shot, right? And so, um, it, you know, as we get to the end of the decade, I mean, there's also then kind of the, the pendulum swings sort of in this other direction against that, which is like, uh, like, why can't, if you have this romantic leading man, why can't he kiss or like, I don't know, like have sex with somebody, right? Like that's the thing um, that happens in movies. Um, and it's not a it's not a direct line, but it's like, and then you get sweet, sweet back, right? Yeah. Sweet, sweet back's badass song, which is like, uh, ugh, right? As far removed from like Poitier sixty stuff as you can possibly get. Um, and I, I mean, I think you you see Poitier like adapting and evolving with the change in times. I mean, all of his seventies like directorial work, right? It feels like what happens when he gets to sort of be behind the camera, have some kind of control over his story, that he actually gets to be interesting characters and not necessarily. Um, just characters who have to like bear the burden of representing the race. Yeah, just to, I mean, in terms of the, the, the what your allusion to the burden of representation, I mean, there's, when you look at the, I guess the history of black film criticism, there is often this kind of trash tendency that borders on the, I said a trash tendency <laughs> that borders on this kind of Highlander clause that there can only be one. Right, so you know the problem with that, with uh, that people might have with the range of work that Sidney Poitier was doing. To me, the bigger problem is that, that there just weren't uh, a range of different kinds of characters. Mm -hmm. His character, the kind of characters he played alone, aren't the problem. It's that it was the only kind of character that was being allowed at the time. Mm -hmm. So that when you get to um, the rise of black exploitation after Sweet Sweetback, Shaft, and Superfly, it's quite easy to be dismissive, but again, it just ends up putting in place another kind of overdetermined sure. kind of uh, role. Um, I'm interested kind of also in, in terms of stardom, right? You know, so I was reading a little bit about this film to prepare. Um, and um, I was very interested in how this was actually one of the highest grossing films of 1967. And I believe he made um, a film deal at the time that was a little unprecedented in that he agreed to take a smaller pay cut in order to get 10% of the box office. So he kind of like really cashed out with this movie, which I'm like, okay, Mr. Poitier. <laughs> um, but I, I'm thinking about the ways that knowing one's worth and playing roles such as this um, then allows him to have the autonomy later in his career as a director um, and kind of what that relationship is like in terms of the ways that black actors use their celebrity to create opportunity for themselves. Hmm. I mean, I also think um, it also feels really important to situate this within like a history of the Hollywood industry. And so I'm thinking about like 67 as being like, kind of right, like the last, like like the, the, the gasps of the Hollywood studio system, like right before it dies, <laughs> right before like, and that's kind of done in like, what, like six, I don't know, 68, 69, something like that. I always, I always think about Jerry Lewis um, and uh, Ladies Man as kind of being like the end of that. But, um, but thinking about, and, and so what I mean by that is like, 
there being an opening too, right? Um, where performers suddenly have some like clout to be able to make those deals in ways that I think would have been kind of, would have been fairly unprecedented, like even 10 years before that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think, um, and I say that to say, it also speaks to Poitier's vision and sort of his, his, his business mind and his strategizing in Hollywood is someone who's been in this industry for quite some time to be able to see those openings and sort of have the vision to make these deals, which, I mean, now that idea of like actors getting part of the back end of a deal, like that's fairly, like that's not a new concept. Right. I mean, but that, that would have been um, a pretty big deal, like 467. Mm -hmm. um, and so him sort of, I think having an understanding of his clout, his, an understanding of the power of his own celebrity to, to be able to sort of make that ask or make that demand, I think is incredibly significant. Yeah, um, yeah, that's so spot on. Uh, I, I suppose what I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, the ways that Sidney Poitier ends up building um, a kind of directorial style out of his own experience and, and actually having a bit more demand over productions, uh, whether you're looking at that run of Uptown Saturday Night, Let's Do It Again and Piece of the, Piece of the Action, or even looking at something later like Stir Crazy. I mean, people have talked about how there's, there's a distinct way of understanding that you know, there's a reason why there's a lot of long takes in a Sidney Poitier directed film, and that's because he really is allowing actors to have more room for improvisation, mm -hmm. right? And so developing this kind of signature style uh, based on his own experience, I think is quite fascinating. I mean, I also think that, I mean, you said when we were chatting um, earlier that he's a, what do you say, he's like an actor's director? An actor. He's an actor's director. I mean, I think, if I'm also just thinking about kind of the role of black performers within Hollywood, um, it feels like the emphasis is always on performance, partly because like black directors, like black directors, that wasn't a thing um, for a very long time, right? And so thinking about, I don't know, I, I guess I just, I also think about actors like Lincoln Perry, but also Hattie McDaniel, performers who had a very keen understanding of like the value that their performance brought to a film mm -hmm. um, and understanding how to monetize that. Um, that feels, I put Portier sort of within that like legacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I was actually reading um, Richard Wesley's uh, memoir. Um, who he wrote, uh, you know, Uptown Saturday Night, Let's Do It Again. And he was talking about how on the black theater scene and the black arts movement, they made pamphlets kind of criticizing Poitier's roles in these films. And then he was kind of, you know, brought to his office to potentially write, you know, this film and, and ended up writing the film. And I was really interested also in the way that he was kind of clued in to what was being said on the ground and what was um, going on in the community as someone who was looking to direct. You know, I, I think originally he wanted like Richard Pryor and Red Fox to be in Let's Do It Again. And then um, was in it because he was able to kind of wield his power to also have more autonomy behind the camera and within the story by being in front of the screen. And I always thought that was a really interesting anecdote about mm -hmm. where he's positioned mm -hmm. um, in the community at the time. Mm -hmm. So, I'm, I mean, yeah, there's, there's so, he's, he's hyper-vigilant about his image um, and, and very deliberate about the roles and very deliberate about um, organizing productions in this way. Um, and you know, for better or worse, that does lead into problems about how he's perceived uh, or, or people's inability to distinguish between his characters and who he is as a person, which I think is 
kind of the larger problem with the way people talk, think about film anyway. Mm -hmm. But um, he particularly suffered that um, and weathered it. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, it doesn't have the same kind of bitterness, say, of, like when you read uh, Lincoln, that Lincoln Perry interview in the 70s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 when he's like working in a strip club and he's introducing the dancers and he's just like, if it wasn't for me, there'd be no Charlie Chaplin, damn it, you know, and it's just... And I think, didn't he, like, I'm trying to remember if I'm getting my anecdotes, I think, didn't he, like, sue Robert Townsend in Hollywood Shuffle for defamation of character? I mean, there's a lot of, there's like, a lot of there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah, but uh, you don't mm -hmm. get that kind of bitterness from uh, Poitier uh, mm -hmm. at all. Do you think that, to a certain degree, that maybe because of maybe the nature of the roles, I know that even in, in his time, you know, there was a limitation, um, but he was someone who was like deeply revered and, and kind of, you know, I think a lot, when I think of him and his work, sometimes I think about specific like notions of respectability, and I'm curious about how he both benefited from that as well as, you know, didn't, and how in his later work, he kind of pushed against it a little bit. I mean, there's the, um, what's the, like, I, I always think about, like, what, whichever that year that was, the Oscars, where Denzel Washington won Best Actor for Training Day and Halle Berry wins for Monsters Ball, and then Sidney Poitier gets, like, the, which, like, the honorary, it was like, like, you know, um, and, and, and Denzel says, when he, t I, I just love his speech as he gets up there and he says, we say, he says, like, two birds with one statue, like, you know, I mean, it's just very much acknowledging kind of, like, the, the politics of the, of the Academy, um, but one of the things that I think is really interesting is that in interviews, Denzel Washington said that he had talked to Sidney Poitier about the types of roles he was playing, and that Sidney Poitier had actually cautioned him early in his career against always playing these kind of respectable um, characters because he himself, because Poitier felt that he had been sort of pigeonholed into those um, and wasn't able to sort of like play the diversity of characters he wanted to play. I mean, he has a quote um, in a great essay by scholar um, Arthur Knight where he, uh, the quote is something like, um, there's no great joy in being a symbol. Um, and, I, and I think to Michael's point, uh, as someone who very much understood kind of like the landscape, and as you're saying, very much in touch with like what the community was saying, like he, he understood how he was functioning in these films, you know, and I mean, I, and I think brought a great depth and complexity to the roles to the extent that he was able to. Um, but I, I mean, I think he, he obviously got it, you know, hence, hence this advice to Denzel Washington, like, yeah, you should play some villains, like, yeah. you know. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm thinking a lot about your own work on, on the limitations of positive and negative representation debates, you know. Um, it seems significant to me that uh, Sidney Poitier didn't have the opportunity uh, or privilege or really an interest in perhaps approaching his career as an actor with any measure of ambivalence, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that it was always this kind of uh, insistent uh, on uh, uh, his own kind of sense of double consciousness mm -hmm. of, of not only how he is seen by some random others, but just how he has in some ways uh, positioned himself as embodying mm -hmm. um, a people and a community. Whether it was realistic or not, that was the choice that he made. I mean, one of the things that, um, <clears throat> that I think that Samantha Shepard, who couldn't um, be here tonight, uh, does a really good job of pointing out in her, she's a really fantastic um, piece in The Atlantic um, about Sidney Poitier that, that came out right after, after he passed away. And one of the things she talks about is, is sort of like what he brings in terms of his performance. I mean, we talk a lot about like the slap in, in the heat of the night, but we don't talk enough about like 
Lilies of the Field and how he's like, there, you know, there's like this, this part does where- Does he slap the nun in he, the Lilies of the Field? No, he does not slap the nun. Um, but there's the part where he's like bargaining or he's like, you know, trying to like do something and someone in this man calls him boy, right? There's like, there's just so much in Sidney Poitier's like bodily performance, um, like all of the things that are not on the page that he sort of represents in how he's like, you just see him tense up and you see his jaw clench and like you think about all, you know, and you can sort of tell all the things he's thinking and wants to do but cannot do. I mean, that's just, that's, that's all him, you know? Um, there's so much nuance in his performance in this film as he weathers like every like little jerky thing that these like kids throw at him over and over and over again. Um, and, you know, and of course, like until the moment that he erupts, right? Like, um, so I, or even the ending where, where he's so sort of overtaken with emotion that he, he can't even really get the words. I mean, so much of, of what he brings is not on the page, I would imagine, right? It's in his, in his sort of unique performance. Is there any particular role that he's done that you favor, that you think is kind of working against the, the embodiment, as you say? I mean, I, I just love him in Uptown Saturday Night. I just, yeah. I, I really, I, and I think partly it's, it's him, but it's not him because he's not, I mean, he's, he's not doing anything radically different. I think it's the framing. I think there's something for me that is someone who also, like, I really adore Lilies of the Field. Like, I, I love Lilies of the Field. Um, but, you know, you have this kind of, like, you have the Poitier films where he's just dropped into white worlds, right? And that's like, that's like Lilies of the Field, and that's a sir with love. I mean, like, we don't know where he comes from. He's just, you know, Lilies of the Field is like, he, he just, we start the film, he's like by the side of the road. You're like, and, it's, <laughs> and he's called Homer and all the allusions to the Odyssey and this wanderer, like, and then he just, you know, and then at the end he leaves, right? And even in, um, uh, um, uh, guess who's coming to dinner? It's, it's like at the end he's boarding a plane to go to Hawaii, like he's just, and he's leaving, right? Um, because he can't, he can't stay in that world. He can, he can visit that world, but he cannot stay there. I mean, that, that always feels like the message of a lot of these films. Um, I mean, he obviously stays at the end of um, Disturb with Love, but again, he just like, he pops up and you're like, why are you here? Like, this, <laughs> you know? Um, so for me, as much as I, there's so much about these films individually that I like, I really enjoy that shift that happens with Uptown Saturday Night. Um, but also like Buck and the Preacher, right? Like, I mean, I like seeing him in black worlds because that was not what his early celebrity was predicated on. Mm -hmm. So I sort of enjoy that sort of shift, that pivot, um, where he's in a completely different context. Um, I, I mean, I'm a fan of the, 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 the kind of, uh, the latter two Miss, uh, Mr. Tibbs films. Um, neither one of them was particularly successful, but they call me Mr. Tibbs in the organization. I just like that seeing that character seemingly in uh, these black spaces, if you, as you put it. Um, I love that whole run of Uptown Saturday Night, let's do it again, and um, um, piece of the action. I mean, hell, I even like Sidney Poitier and Sneakers. So, has anybody seen Sneakers? Oh, oh, look at that. There's, there's that hope in the world. There really is. Yeah. I mean, every, every role that he took on, mm -hmm. there was always something uh, distinctive about it that to me was bigger than uh, the accusations of him always being the ebony saint or that he was, uh, you know, I, 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 I guess I'm thinking of uh, uh, someone who was arguing with me of like, uh, how can you say that he's not sexy? He's the sexiest damn thing on the screen in anything he's in, so. 
That's, I kind of lean that way too. <laughs> Not to um, create a binary, of course, but also thinking about just like alternate entryways um, to his legacy. You know, I thought a lot about how like, for me, you know, I was, I was born in the late 90s and um, <laughs> I know, but um, my, my entryway to, to Sidney Poitier and his legacy is actually let's do it again because I had a conversation with um, my parents about the Notorious B.I.G., right? His, mm -hmm. his name is Biggie Smalls and that's Calvin Lockhart's character um, and let's do it again. And I think that's a very interesting lineage in terms of like Poitier's impact outside of, mm -hmm. um, you know, the confines in which we think of him um, mm -hmm. as being, so yeah. I mean, there's also something about those films, right? Like if it's if it's like Uptown Saturday Night, let's do it again, because it, it puts, I mean, to your earlier question, when you said who are his contemporaries, I mean, I feel like the story of the first half of his Hollywood career is that he has no contemporaries. It's like that exceptionalism thing, right? It's 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 just him, right? Um, it, it's, it's, it's sort of like, almost anticipating what we get with like Eddie Murphy in the 80s where like you can have like the biggest global box office star be like this black man but like no other black people are going to get any roles doing anything um, and so there's sort of that and then when you put him in these other films like next to a Cal Calvin Lock Lockhart suddenly Sidney Poitier is in conversation right and so and, and his stardom and his celebrities in conversation with these other types of black celebrities right um, which I think is a really like really interesting. Yeah, especially, um, I know there was recently an article about like the notion of being black famous and kind of yeah, the ways yeah, in which, you yeah. know, um, your fame and, and your legacy can exist in a different sphere within the black community than it does at large with, you know, a different kind of audience. Um, so mm -hmm. that's, I think that was interesting, kind of that tension when I was coming to this talk, thinking about like, how do I know Sidney Poitier? I mean, it's in, I mean, you bring up black, you brought up like, yeah, there's that, that, that article that just came out on black famous. I mean, there's the... Like when Kevin Hart had that show, like Real Husbands of Hollywood, that was on BT. I mean, there's a whole riff with him and Chris Rock about like, well, and Chris Rock's like, well, I'm famous, but you're black famous, right? I mean, and in some ways, that's the thing about Sidney Poitier too, right? Is that he he was not black famous, um, but I think that should should actually open up questions for us about which audiences we privilege, right? And which types of stardom and which types of reverberations um, we count as mattering in terms of sort of cultural resonance and like impact. Do you know what I mean? Um, which are, I mean, which is a, a larger philosophical question, but yeah. No, and thinking about the entire arc of his career, I think it's not only a lesson and uh, a lesson and opportunity to kind of study craft, uh, but it's also a lesson in um, being much more conscious about, in some ways, the expectations that we have of film uh, are too much. Mm -hmm. um, in many ways, uh, this kind of insistence that the image has to be positive, um, that, the Im that it has to have a 401k, that it know how to tie a bow tie, that it can change a tire. <laughs> At some point, we need to understand that we're talking about a film and we're not talking about people. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think often um, that got lost in, as time went on with the reception of Sidney Poitier's work. Yeah, I think that, you know, we talked about earlier a little bit about how respectability politics can be a hindrance um, from allowing someone to be fully human, you know, quote unquote human in that way. And that we need to humanize groups of people and that can be incredibly limiting. But it also, I mean, I also think it, it undermines like the strength of his performances and the strength of his films, right? Because if we're only ever, I mean, it's like, I just, every time we talk about this, I keep having, I just keep imagining that I'm sitting with my mom, like watching a film and, you know, and my mom, this is great. Like, why do you think this is great? Like, because look at where we were. Like, but if you, 
but if you're only ever evaluating Sidney Poitier in comparison to whatever your bad object is, right? What, what like let's say Mantan Moreland, who I adore, but like, right, if you're only ever saying, well, he's not that, then we're never actually sort of focusing on what he is. And what he is in these films is, is special and, and sort of deserving of analysis. Um, and it's not just that he's not that other thing, right? I mean, even regarding performance, you know, I was thinking, Earlier, when I was doing some research and you know watching some of his films, I was just like, he's he also a lot of work for the like, yeah. Oh, thank you. Okay. You know, I had to come prepare. I'm with some heavy hitters over here, y'all. I wasn't gonna look stupid, <laughs> but you know, I was also just kind of struck by something I don't attribute to him. Um, and again, maybe the limitations of you know, but he's really has really strong comedic timing and he's really yeah. great. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, 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 you know, kind of like the trilogy of the 70s we talk about in a lot of his other films. I'm like, oh, wait, okay, Mr. Portier, you know, you're kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what you see, what you get to, I mean, I think that's, you know, I keep, if it's not like a broken record, so I keep talking about Uptown Saturday Night, but I think yeah. you get to see it there, right? Mm -hmm. There's no room for it to be highlighted. I mean, you, I think, I mean, he's really funny to me in Lilies of the Field. Um, like, there's not a whole lot of comedy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, you see it, um, but you, but about like, I think about the spaces that allow that to flourish, right? Um, uh, which are which are really important. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was hoping too we could kind of dive in uh, a little bit. We talked about Denzel, but I would also love to talk a little bit about Sidney um, Poitier's legacy, um, especially now that he's no longer with us, and you know, kind of what we can learn and who who is, like he laid the foundation for and maybe how that's also limiting and looking at it in that sense. But I think I've always heard of um, him and Denzel as, you know, constantly being in conversation with each other. You know, of course, when he won the Academy Award, he's like, I'm, I'm chasing you and held up the award to him. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even just seeing like a film like To Serve With Love and being like, okay, this is kind of giving me like, you know, lean on me vibes or, <laughs> <laughs> or even like that, the movie Denzel was in the Hard Lessons movie where he's like, mm -hmm. you know, in like LA trying to reform the school and, mm -hmm. you know, um, kind of drawing those parallels. Um, we could talk about that. It's, I mean, it's interesting because I, I haven't, um, I mean, this is also the, in some ways this is also like the, the, the ongoing power of like the classic Hollywood era that we should probably like really like work on deconstructing because we're always like, we're always saying like, who's the contemporary Sidney Poitier? Who's the contemporary like Cary Grant? Who's the, you know, who's the contemporary Elizabeth Taylor, right? Um, what I do think is interesting is thinking about a type of black masculinity that Sidney Poitier kind of like codified on screen and therefore who invokes that, and maybe not consistently, but in, in particular roles. And I think, um, I mean, I think Denzel Washington like does that. I mean, I think Danny Glover to a certain, I mean, there's like, there's other actors who are able, Mahershala Ali, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, um, but without, but without the same, I mean, I think Sidney Poitier though is so unique because of the respectability thing that happens in the 60s. I mean, that's just so, that's just so unique. I mean, I'm thinking about, um, there's been a lot of discussion recently about like um, uh, the, the new like Criterion release of Mississippi Masala and like, you know, um, and like you couldn't have that movie and Denzel not have sex with the woman. Like that's, that would be ridiculous, right? But like, but that's what I mean by Sidney Poitier is so, what he did was so unique, partly because of these really like specific constraints of the time in which he was he was making films. Yeah, you've you've said all the names that came to mind. So uh, uh, I I think 
you know, in terms of speaking to the legacy uh, or speaking to the lingering questions and lessons that we can learn from his, his, his vast career, um, is perhaps it is to take, uh, take a pause sometimes and appreciate the value of a little bit of ambivalence uh, and as a way of kind of keeping our expectations in check and actually allowing the work to do what it wants to do and flourish and challenge us. Um, you know, I learn, I learn a lot usually from things I, I, that, that, have, that upset me more so than placate me, you know? And, and, and I think that, um, yeah, we can learn to be challenged more by uh, possibilities of the art of black film and the art of blackness in general. Okay, well, um, thank you all for joining me, especially you guys. Thank you so much. It was so thank wonderful. You. Yay! Yes, thank you. <laughs>